Hey guys, welcome back to the Misfit Independent Podcast. We're so excited to have you back here. Today, we're going to be interviewing Severina Lutaj, a good friend of mine and Katie's from back in the university days. And Sev is a bit of a real estate investment guru and somebody that I truly look up to. Like when I think about what Sev is doing in the workplace, she's carving a path for women in finance and just really leading with grace in a male dominant sector. And I'm so excited to have you on Sev because you're one of my biggest inspirations. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. I've been uh, listening to you guys for a while now, and obviously we've known each other forever. We were actually just sharing uh, some stories from our university days, and it seems like we've come such a long way from uh, eating Tuckner's fries in the Schulich basement and you know staying up all night to do assignments. Um, so I'm just glad we've been able to, we were connected then and have just stayed so close over the years. Yeah, Sev and I actually also went on exchange together. So we spent some time in Morocco, um, staying in uh, like a local camp in the middle of the Sahara Desert. And that was like yep. one of my like best memories um, from exchange. It, it was amazing. And, and that's one of the beautiful things about um, being an environment like Schulich, because we had that work hard, play hard sort of attitude. And the people that you did those 3M assignments with, you, you ended up forming a really close bond. And then that took us, you know, throughout life and through Morocco and all of the other places that we went in Europe. So I'm, I'm glad we have all those memories. For sure. And, you know, it's, it's cool to see like how far you've come with your professional career and, you know, to be in a space where we're, we're adults, you know, and we're, you know, going after these big goals, big dreams and working towards incredible things. Yeah, no. And, and I get a lot of um, people who reach out that are students and they're asking me for advice and and it's it's a weird sort of contrast because uh up until this point you know i was the one who was constantly messaging people on linkedin on every platform constantly asking others for advice and it feels weird to sort of um see other people going through that path uh, but if there's one thing that i know is that no matter how much older and how much more experience you get there's always somebody to look up to um so it, you sort of are always going to be a lifelong learner one way or another for sure, Sev. I feel you about people messaging you now. I went to uh, the York Marketing Association Fair as a delegate, and it was so strange and surreal to be like in the shoes of somebody that people are trying to network with, you know, like, yeah. what, if, what am I going to tell you? Um, yeah, it was cool. It was cool to flip the script and kind of be in a different position. And, you know, I always think about how when we were in that position, there was somebody who we were looking up to who was helping us out. So to now be in those shoes, to be able to give back is just so valuable. Yeah, and, and it's also one of those things where you used to go to those events and the mindset was so different. You were constantly thinking that, you know, what, what do I know? And so it's almost interesting to be in this position because that mindset is still there where you still feel young and you still feel like, what do I know? And I, I think especially as women uh, in, in the workplace, you, you have to overcome that and always think, okay, there are things that I don't know, but there are definitely things that I do know and sort of use that to, to, to move yourself forward. Um, so I think mentality is, um, is a big part part of, you know, just going through any career and just, you know, experiencing life. For sure. So I think one of the things that you kind of touched on the mentality piece. So imposter syndrome is something that I, I personally deal with. I don't know, Katie, if you deal with it as well, probably like, you know, we're, we're adults and just thinking about our professional careers and like trying to provide value to somebody else. A lot of the times you realize that, you know, you don't know everything and, 
you don't know what you don't know. Um, so imposter syndrome is a really real thing. What's your experience with it been like? Um, yeah, so I, I think I've had imposter syndrome forever, even before I knew that there was uh, a label to it. I remember reading the formalized definition of imposter syndrome somewhere on the internet a couple of years back. And I'm like, there's a there's a name for this. Other people experience this. And uh, the more that it's sort of become a mainstream terminology, uh, the more other people have opened up about it. And so I've realized that you know, it's almost comforting that other people go through it because you realize we're all in the same boat, we're all doing our best. Um, and something that I've really worked with um, myself is, you know, you're not always going to know everything um, and not knowing something, but being able to say, you know what, I want to learn, I'm dedicated to learning and I'm going to work hard for it. There should be a sense of confidence that comes from that. And if you can draw strength from that, then I think that's very powerful and that'll sort of help you combat that imposter syndrome and that sort of, um, you know, back in your head thinking of, you know, I shouldn't be in this environment or what do I know? So um, that, that's one of the tools that I use and has served me really well. No, I think that's incredible, especially being able to recognize what you don't know and then trying to build upon that and learn and grow as a human and as a professional, I think is really important. And you were talking a little bit earlier about helping people and thinking you don't know anything, but it's like so amazing to see once you start talking to these people and providing them with advice and coaching them and then realizing, hey, like I actually do know a lot about <laughs> finance or about this or about that. And it's really amazing to see how much we've grown as humans and from our Shulik days as well. Yeah, definitely. And, and one of the things that I always, um, try to do is I never try to tell anybody to do one thing or another. What I try to do is to just have as much of an open conversation on where they're at and maybe share my own experience. Um, but I think if you can encourage the people around you to just believe in themselves and really think about what they're doing, they will come to their own conclusions. Um, so that's how I approach, you know, giving advice to people is, is really just sort of encouraging them to, to find their solutions. I think that's amazing. So you've gone through quite a bit of a professional journey too, over the last couple of years, like you are somebody who I, I always look up to in the sense that you've got so much on your plate, but you somehow still manage time and, and find a way to balance everything. So what's, what's your experience been like um, as a woman in finance, in real estate? Just what, what are the past couple of years looked like for you? Yeah, I, I was uh, in a little bit of an interesting position where um, I worked for uh, or across two industries for two different firms and then had various roles in there within uh, investment banking and commercial real estate development. Um, and if there's one thing that I think I was sort of um, good at doing or that I think I, I would like to continue doing is I always looked at what was the most interesting and unique opportunity for me to learn. I never really looked at, for example, what was the label of the firm, what was the, um, who, who was that Schulich and who was sort of the popular firms because anybody who's gone through business school knows that you sort of have the people who sponsor school. And when you're that age and it's your first time experiencing anything, you think the horizon or the, the ecosystem is limited to those five companies. For example, at Schulich, it was, you know, the, 
the accounting firms or, or the big banks. Um, so I always tried to stay away from what was sort of uh, popular and what was everybody was gunning for. If I could, you know, learn one more thing from it that I thought was valuable, that's what I took on. And so starting in first year university, it was one opportunity that sort of led to another from my first uh, management 1000 class. And then that led to another opportunity. And then it led me ultimately into this incredibly unique experience of being able to work for uh, two companies who were semi-related, but in two different industries, which I think um, was something that I, I don't think a lot of people can say. Um, and it's been one of the most invaluable experiences of, of my entire life is just being in an environment where the people around you are very, very strong. They're constantly looking to learn. Um, and I think that sort of rubs itself off on, on you and how you think about the world. Definitely, Seb. I think what you said there about not going for the status quo, not doing something that everybody is doing is so valuable. A lot of the times you think that, you know, the opportunities that are presented to you are, are it, but truly you create the opportunities that are available to you. Like you meet people, they open doors and life is not this static journey. It takes you into so many different paths. So you're 100% right. I went with the status quo <laughs> right out of Schulich. I went with one of the big four accounting firms um, to get some audit experience, but that's what I wanted. Like I wanted the work hard, grind, crazy hours, build up my knowledge of financial statements of how companies operate. But yeah, like you said, there are so many opportunities out there and you have to create those for yourself. Yeah, and, and just be open to everything. So you're, again, if, you, if you're led by this curiosity to learn and to sort of grow for yourself, I don't think you you can be ever led astray. So whether that leads you into the big four or a big bank or a unique opportunity within itself or to starting a business, um, I think that should just be the driver of most of your decisions. And that's sort of how I've always experienced everything. Um, and, and it served me well to date, I think. Definitely. I mean, it's brought you to the unique position where you're essentially, like like you said, you took on two roles. So your openness led you not just to one job that you were running, but two in two very different fields. And you just accumulated this huge wealth of knowledge. Um, and, and I love just chatting with you about real estate on the side because, you know, there's so much to learn from you and all the kind of things that you have learned just through being in the industry and seeing things firsthand. So why don't we let's steal some of that knowledge yeah that yeah why don't, why don't we do a little <laughs> bit of knowledge transfer here so why don't we start the conversation and ask you about your experience with real estate investing and let's say um i wanted to buy my first house what what do i need to know where should i start so th that's actually a really great question and um i i think any type of investment, whether it's real estate or otherwise, is almost a, a very personal sort of decision. So I think you first have to take a step back and say, well, what am I looking to do? Am I looking to buy a house for myself and this is where I want to raise my family? Am I looking for an investment property? And if so, what's my time horizon? What do I want to get out of this? Am I looking to build a portfolio of properties for myself by the time I'm, you know, so-and-so age? Am I looking to help build some equity so that when I'm ready to start a family, for example, I, I have something so I can buy my dream house? So 
I think that, that that definitely is the first place to start is to figure out what your goals are. And these can be very sort of big picture. Life isn't linear, as you said before. So there, you know, you can't map out, I want to do, you know, X, Y, Z within three and a half years. And then six months later, I want to do this and that. Um, but as long as you have a general direction and a general sort of thesis on, on what you would like to do and accomplish, then I think that's a great first place to start. So let's say I wanted to purchase an investment property. What are some of the things you would suggest to look for when looking to purchase an investment property? Yeah, so an investment property is almost uh, a lot more difficult to purchase an investment property than it is to buy a house for yourself because the parameters are so much wider. If you're looking to buy your dream house, for example, you you have an idea of what your favorite areas are. You probably want to stay close to work or maybe close to your parents or maybe close to your friends. So the parameters get a lot smaller and then you sort of work within those. When it comes to an investment property, a lot of people are looking at one of two things. You either want appreciation or you want to get some yield and ultimately you just want to make money. So the parameters on that are a lot bigger and I think being able to um, start narrowing down and focus on what you would like to accomplish um, is the first step. So is it an appreciation play or is it a yield play? And, and simply saying uh, both, I think is not gonna serve you well uh, because then it's gonna be very hard to actually compare opportunities that come up. Um, so the, the first step when you're looking for an investment property is to sort of, you know, focus that in your mind and then you can get on to the next steps, which I think are uh, surrounding yourself with a team of people who really know what they're doing. I think that was a really, really in-depth analysis. I definitely want to dig into uh, yield versus appreciation a little bit more in detail. But one thing that I um, kind of thought of, Seb, because, you know, I've, I've been really interested in real estate investing for the past little bit. And I've realized that while you're young, you've got this great opportunity to set yourself up for success in the future. And I actually um, posted about this on our Instagram stories the other day, my like thought of the day. I was talking to my dad and we were playing Catan and it kind of hit me that life is like a game of Catan and where you set up your first settlement, you build that first house in a road. If anybody listening plays Catan, you know what I'm talking about? I have about. no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Basically you set up this house and it brings you resources along the way. So where you build that first property will determine the success of the game, whether or not you win or not. So I think it's crucial to realize that while you're young, you've got this unique opportunity to build wealth for yourself, whether that's generational wealth, if that's something that you're going for, or just set yourself up for a good life and, and, you know, get everything out of it that you've always dreamed of. Um, I think it's important to realize your first property doesn't have to be your dream house, especially if you're young, you know, it's definitely not going to be that, that dream vision that you have in mind. So does it make sense to get as close to that vision as possible or, and definitely make a lot of sacrifices because, you know, when you're in your early twenties or thirties, you're not going to have your, your highest income potential that you'll have down the road in life. So does it make sense to buy um, your dream property or as close to, or does it make more sense to buy something that is more of an investment property? And I think people need to realize that the first house they purchase is not going to be the house they end up in. The average person I think moves, what was it like four to five? I could be totally wrong, but multiple times in their lifetime. So I think that's a great point that you're making, um, Nika, when it comes to purchasing your first property, 
And I guess she was posing the question, should you look for a property that comes as close to your vision or your goal, or your dream as possible, or should you look at it more from an investment perspective? Yeah, I, I actually really love that you brought that up because I think, you know, in talking to people who are my age, the two most common things that I hear are one, it's impossible to get on the property lander, uh, ladder in this day and age um, and, you know, in this ecosystem. It's number one. And number two, for people who think they're almost they're almost ready, it's always like, oh my goodness, but, you know, this is the house that I want, or this is where my parents' house was, or this is where so-and-so bought their house, and I just can't get there. Um, and I think both of those have major, major, uh, you know, pitfalls. Um, the first one being um, that you absolutely can get on the property ladder. It takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of hard work, a lot of searching. You think making the down payment is the hardest part until you have that down payment and then you're ready to invest and you realize how hard it actually is to find an opportunity that suits exactly what you know, you're trying to get out of it. Awesome, Sev. Let's backtrack for a quick sec. So we were talking about different types of investments and you mentioned yield versus appreciation. Can you dig into that a little bit more. Let's unpack what each type of investment strategy is. Yeah, sure. So um, let's start with uh, the appreciation strategy. The appreciation strategy is essentially you looking to make money on the delta between what you bought the house for and what you're selling the house for. So you're looking to go into an area where you think there is high growth. Um, so this could be an area where you have a lot of development going on. This could be an area where you're seeing um, that people are flocking towards and therefore it's driving prices up. Um, and you basically want to buy it, hold on to it for maybe a couple of years, or maybe you want to flip it right away, depending on uh, what you see an appropriate time horizon there. Um, but really the key there is that you want to jump in on its way up in price and, and make money off of that difference. Uh, as far as yield, you want to make money off the rent that you're getting every single month. So the key here is you want to have the lowest mortgage possible so that you have the lowest amount of monthly expenses. And you want to make sure that it's a strong rental market so that you can put a renter in there and whatever money you're going to get from the renter not only covers your basic expenses, which is your mortgage, your insurance and your property tax, but that there's enough room there that you can actually be getting an income on the side from this property. Well, you mentioned earlier earlier that it's not almost impossible. I was, I'm not sure about your exact wording, but it's hard to achieve both having rental income as well as achieving um, growth on the property. So why is that the case? It's, it's not impossible, and there are certainly opportunities out there where that does exist, but it's harder to compare. So when you're um, you know, when you're unfocused in your strategy, you end up looking at a lot of opportunities and it ends up being a lot more confusing than uh, you might intend it to be. Being in the market already, it moves so quickly. It is so incredibly competitive in Canada. The, the way I would um, explain the Canadian, you know, landscape um, as far as residential real estate is that it has been so strong and it's been on the up and up consistently for so long that it drives a lot of people to it. There's low barriers to entry so long as you can make the down payment and you have a couple years of, you know, um, work experience that you can send to the bank, anybody can get into it. And a lot of people who don't understand or don't trust the equity markets go to real estate first. So that puts you in this position where everybody's looking for opportunities constantly and you're likely going to go into bidding situations. Um, 
So again, it, it, it goes back to um, being able to focus and being able to compare opportunities that come up. So it's not impossible to find, um, but I, I would just say that the, the sooner you know what to look for, the easier you can start filtering for what makes sense for you. So you initially were saying you're when you're in this searching phase, you're doing a lot of research and we'll we'll talk about that in depth because I want to know what kind of tools we use when you research and how you go about that phase. But you said something that really resonated with me and that's anybody can get into it. Interest rates right now, we've talked about them when we were chatting with Liz from Ambitious Adulting. She's a big real estate investor too. Um, anybody that has a certain history um, for work experience can go and get a mortgage from a bank as long as your credit yeah, history credit is score. strong, your credit score is strong, um, which we've talked about before, different ways to build your credit score. But that is something that you need to be preparing for. But let's, let's go into the planning phase. So let's say you want to buy real estate. You now know that anybody can get into it, even if you've never been open to the idea before. It's a relatively safe investment, um, in my opinion, but Sev will get your thoughts on whether or not it's a safe investment or not. And how would you go about planning to purchase a property? And specifically, what I mean by that is, um, how do you put together a down payment? How much should you strive for? How do you figure out what the right down payment is? And then we'll go into actually how to find the right property. Awesome. So, uh, you know, to, to touch base or to touch um, on what you just mentioned about, is it a safe investment or not? Historically, it has been. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, it, it will continue to be and absolutely will continue to be. Um, but what I can say is that so long as you are not depending on this investment within a certain time period, you should be okay. So what, what a lot of people um, do is they say, you know what, I want to buy this property and I want to flip it within the year. If something happens within the year, are you able to hold it or not? So as long as you put yourself in a position where you are able to hold on to that property, you won't be forced to sell, then overall, it should be, uh, you know, I, I don't like using the word safe because I, you know, um, it, it's an opinion at the end of the day. Um, but I think if you're able to hold on to that property and ride out anything that's unforeseen, for the most part, that people have been successful that way. And COVID is a prime example of something that sort of flipped the market on its head. So you mentioned um, about flipping a property. So what do you mean by flipping? Is it like flipping in the traditional sense or just, I, I want to know what your thoughts are there. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people will go into a place, they'll buy, you know, they'll say, I'm going to buy an old place, I'm going to do some rentals on it, and I see that, you know, the, the prices in this area are increasing, so I'm going to add value to that house, and I'm going to sell it right away. So it's really just me taking something that I think, you know, as is at this price level right now add value. And then that flip becomes when you make a profit in, in that time period. But if you put a time horizon on it within a year, for example, um, and you, you did that in, let's say, downtown Toronto, all of a sudden, something like COVID happens, and now it's no longer the best time for you to sell. If you're able to hold it, you can typically ride out these sort of waves in the market, and, and you should be able to do well at some point. But it it really does boil down to you not being so stringent on that time horizon. No, Steph, I was just going to say, if um, if we use that example that you were talking about, let's say you buy um, a $700 townhouse 
or you want to buy a $700, seven hundred dollars, $700,000. $700,000 would be nice. I can <laughs> yeah. acquire a couple like, of those. <laughs> pay for it with Monopoly money. But let's say you want to buy a $700,000 townhouse in Toronto. Let's just, let's just say those exist. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> what, uh, what do I need to do um, to be able to get there? Yeah, so this is actually a really good question. Um, I think a lot of people just assume that, um, you know, getting a realtor is the first step. Um, in, in my opinion, I think that everybody should try to surround themselves with as many professionals as possible. That includes a really strong realtor, a really strong mortgage broker, at the least at the very beginning. And I think um, most people think that you should, you know, you only talk to your mortgage broker once you found a house, you're about to close and you need the financing you should go to them as early in the game as possible. Show them where you're at, what your finances look like, how much of a down payment you have, and what can you afford. The mortgage space is very complicated. There are a ton of options and it's constantly changing. So you wanna to speak to somebody who really knows what they're doing and can advise you on what you can afford and what your parameters are. So let's say your budget is to buy that, you know, million dollar property, likely in this competitive landscape, whatever it's listed for, it might end up going, you know, to 1.1 million, 1.2 million, and you need to be able to know what you can afford. Because when you go into those competitive situations, a lot of the time, because it's so competitive, you'll have to waive, you know, either a financing condition or an inspection condition. And so you want to make sure that you're sure about those parameters and you have somebody who knows what they're doing and who's in contact with the banks guiding you along the way. So have you mentioned about the conditions, how there's two different kinds of conditions. There's a financing condition where you basically say when you put in an offer, you get the realtor to submit a clause that says, if we can't get approval for a mortgage, this offer is null and void. And the other condition is an inspection condition where you have the right after you submit the offer to bring an inspector in. And if they find something that just makes you decide, you know what, this property is not structurally fit, it's going to need like $300,000 worth of repairs, which we don't have right now, you can also make that offer null and void. So what Seb was talking about, guys, for people that are a little bit newer, maybe don't have as much background, you have the option to waive those conditions or not include them. And that makes your offer more competitive. So let's say two people put an offer for that million dollar townhouse at 1.1 million. If somebody says, you know, we can't buy this until we're approved for a mortgage, that's our condition. And you don't put that condition in, you will get that property. It makes your offer more competitive. Um, from a financial standpoint, yes. But putting in an offer without conditions for inspections, you're taking on a lot more risk. Oh, 100%. It's so risky, especially, especially financing. Yeah. And especially when it comes to houses, maybe not so much with condos because there's maintenance costs that kind of go into um, fixing things around the condo. But when it comes to housing, plumbing, um, I don't know, mold, stuff like that, those are like hundreds, thousands of hundreds of thousand dollars worth of repairs that you could end up having to pay if, if you don't have that inspection initially done. Yeah, so this is huge. And I'm so glad we're talking about this because it leads me to my other point of having a really good realtor is really important. And the easiest way to find a realtor typically is through referral. So, you know, you ask your mom, your dad, your friends, and somebody I guarantee you has worked with a realtor, knows a realtor, is around a realtor. Um, but make sure that when you're looking for somebody that you do almost comparison shop. 
and you have to figure out what your goals are and what that realtor specializes in and see if you have a match in terms of you know what you're looking for and what they have a lot of experience doing because a realtor will guide so much of your decision making um, and one of those things is how to go into these competitive scenarios so what ends up happening in these competitive scenarios like you guys mentioned is you're often forced to do things which are not always the best decisions which is waive a financing condition or waive an inspection condition um, and on one hand you want to be as safe as possible but on the other hand you know, once you've lost out in these competitive situations several times, you start being almost forced by the market to do something like that, which is waive an inspection condition. But if you've got a really good realtor, they can guide you through how to get through these situations without putting yourself at risk. So that that if your realtor ever tells you, for example, that this is absolutely what you should do, that's that's not appropriate and it's not the best advice to give. What could be more appropriate is something like, if you really like this property, on the first time that you go and see the house and you have that viewing, you can actually bring an inspector out with you. So while you're looking at the property, they can actually evaluate the property with you and provide you with a report after. The risk to this is that if you end up not putting an offer in or losing out on that property, you've now lost some cash in paying that uh, inspector. But the upside is that you either know about something before you put an offer in or you have the comfort that if you do put an offer in and if you do win on that offer then you're not going to find out about something later so that's something that a really good realtor will know and can connect you to um, and that's sort of a workaround to that solution so you don't put yourself at risk but you also don't lose out on opportunities because this is what's happening in the market unfortunately and in order to be competitive you have to figure out a way to um uh to you know to come above the rest Wow, that's actually some really good advice. I wouldn't even have thought to bring an inspector with me while going through like an open house or a showing. Do you know how much inspectors cost to come out and inspect the property? Yeah, so it, inspectors, you have to speak to, um, you know, the, the, the inspectors that are around you and everybody will give you their own quote, but it could be anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to maybe over $500 uh, for a full report. Um, there are two types of inspections that can happen. One is a walkthrough where they essentially will walk through the space and actually physically show you if there are cracks in the foundation, if there, for example, spot asbestos, if there are any major concerns, but they won't give you a report afterwards. So this is typically cheaper and a little bit faster. It's not as thorough, but it is good as a preliminary sweep of the house to see if there's anything that you know is a major red flag right away. The second type is a little bit more expensive. It comes with a full report and it's also insured by the inspector. So if they tell you that there are no cracks in the foundation, there's no asbestos, and later on down the road, you find out that there's a major, major issue, you can actually legally go back to them because that's what you know they have insured through that report. Um, not that I, I would advise this, but just uh, you know, for comparison purposes of what the two um, the two different types of inspections are. Obviously, you would want to be as protected as you can be. So if you can get you know that report and have them do a thorough job, that's typically in your best interest. But it also does depend on how much time you have and how interested you are in that property. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's something very useful that everyone can take away from this. Um, another question that just popped into my head was when you are planning on purchasing an investment property, how much cash 
will you have on hand or budgeted cash will you have like kind of in like a savings in case something goes wrong with the property? For example, the tenants completely destroy your property or there are some renovations that you have to do. Like you have to do the redo the roof in a few years. So how much do you kind of have kept away for those like just in case or emergency renovations? And not just that Sev, but also like when you're buying a property, what are all the costs that you should plan for? Like, are, are you factoring in things like land transfer tax? Maybe you can explain that in detail as well. Sorry, that was a loaded question, but <laughs> try to do your best with all of that. Yeah, so it, it is a little bit of a loaded question and it also really is dependent on the property that you're looking at. So things like rentals are, it could be anything from you painting the walls to you having to repair the roof, like you said. So taking stock of what kind of property you have, when the roof was done, when the, how old the roof is, um, how old the furnace is, um, you know, how old the water tank is and how much uh, on its contract does it have left there. There are all these things that your realtor should be able to help you with and should tell you that uh, where they are in the game. And then based on that, you can sort of see if, if the roof was just done a year ago, chances are it's going to be under warranty and you won't have to really think about it for, you know, um, you know, five to 10 years. Um, but if it, you know, was done like you know, eight years ago, then you'll know that in a couple of years, you're probably going to have to budget for that. So as long as you are taking stock of everything, speaking to your realtor, um, and I think the inspection one way or another, even if you don't need it for uh, the offer, I think that's extremely important to do because a lot of the issues that you should know about and probably won't know about because you won't be able to tell if you're not very experienced, they'll, they'll be the ones to pinpoint those things. Even things like water drainage, if uh, the property isn't sealed and you know water can get into the basement, you should be able to pull from that report of theirs, how much money you need to spend on doing these things. And hopefully that'll save you down the road. I guess more specifically, I'm wondering how much of a safety net do you put aside when you have tenants? Because depending on what tenants you have at your property, they could make problems that did not exist. Um, uh, whether that be like the appliances, the dishwasher, the fridge. So I was wondering how much of kind of like a of a safety nest you have there for repairs when it comes to damages? Yeah, so that, that's an interesting question. Again, it's one of those things where you have to take stock of what's there. Um, typically appliances are a couple hundred bucks to maybe a thousand bucks. So if it's normal wear and tear, you might go up to you know a grand or two grand there. Um, if there's major damage because of, you know, tan, uh, tenants being irresponsible or something going on at the property, unfortunately, that's unforeseen and you have to deal with that, whether it's by evicting them or, you know, and taking them to the landlord and tenant board. Um, during COVID, I think uh, this is something that's of a particular concern to people because um, evictions have been uh, banned for uh, during the first lockdown and, and now as well. So it's harder to get bad tenants out. Um, even if they're doing something that's, you know, inappropriate in the property. So now, especially, uh, I would definitely keep a lot of rent on reserve, uh, just in case you have to pay the mortgage and your tenant stops paying because you cannot get them out in this time period. Um, 
or for the time being, hopefully that changes very soon. And then also as far as renos, at least a couple of thousand bucks for, for just renos. And again, this is in the event of something happening. This is not something that you sort of have to replenish every single year, but if it does happen, you wanna make sure that you have that safety net. The good thing is guys, if you buy a condo, you don't have to worry about any of those things. You don't have to worry about roofs, hot water tanks, windows, like all of that is covered. If it's your first property um, and you, don't necessarily have a lot of cash saved up for a down payment. A condo might be a good investment as well. Right now, condos are they've dropped significantly. So one of the things, the first things that Sev said is when you're trying to invest and you're going for an appreciation strategy, you want to invest in something that's going to go up and you're you're following that property on the upswing. So like Katie and I always talk about investing on the dips. Buy the dips. <laughs> condos right now, in my personal opinion, guys, I'm not an investment advisor. I'm not a real estate advisor. But in my personal opinion, I think there's a lot of opportunity because at some point, people will want to move back to the main cities. People will want to go back to the way things were in the past, where they were walking to work, where they live downtown, where all the action is. So I think condos 100% at some point will go up. Maybe Maybe condos downtown have dipped a little bit in price, but... My boyfriend has been looking, like I told you earlier, in Richmond Hill, and everything is selling way over asking, bidding wars galore. My boyfriend put in an offer for full asking, and it went over, like, I think, $30,000 over asking for a condo. So I guess it depends on the area in Toronto or the GTA, but I don't think all condos right now are, are underpriced or undervalued. Yeah, condos like houses, um, they're, they're not all made equally. Uh, Toronto during this time has seen a particular dip. And what's really funny is that before COVID even existed, if you talk to your realtor about where to invest, the one thing that they, they would probably say to you is that, well, you know, you could invest in a condo downtown. It's expensive, but it's safe. That was sort of the general mentality around, um, you know, investing in downtown condos because you knew the rental market was always going to be there. And then come COVID and now the rental market, you know, in, in Toronto has been the worst it's ever been. And it, it's hurt a lot of investors because as an investor, you depend on somebody to pay rent in order for you to cover your costs. And the moment that you don't have a tenant or you have tenants that are not paying, and especially with this wave of people not being in the city, you have a lot of people moving out and leaving their leases. And it puts investors in a position where they just can't afford to keep their costs. And now multiply this by a portfolio of properties. And so you saw this almost um, dump of properties properties of investors just trying to get rid of their assets because they couldn't afford to keep them. And so it has led to some softening in the prices. Um, and some people do believe that, you know, if you can get in now, it's going to go up when things get uh, somewhat back to normal, whatever that may be. But again, you, you can, I, I would always avoid telling people what to do. I can only advise on what we're seeing right now. And then it's up to you to decide whether or not that's a risk you want to take. Because at the end of the day, you never know what could happen. You can crunch all the numbers in the world, do all the research, build your down payment. And you could have bought a condo, you know, in January of last year at the peak of where prices were. And then in March, COVID happens. And unfortunately, there's just nothing that you can do except try to carry, you know, carry that property and ride it out until things sort of um, move in a different direction. So I, I always come back to, so long as you can be introspective enough to know this is what I plan to do and this is what I feel comfortable with. And I've thought about this in a way that, you know, if I have to carry it myself, I can, then over the long term, you should be successful. 
And as you mentioned a little earlier, it's a tenant's market out there right now, especially with a lot of vacancies in um, investment properties. And I, I know from personal experience, tenants come back now to investors or property owners and say, hey, um, my friend's renting a similar type of unit for a lot less. So if you don't drop your price, we're going to go find something else because there's so many vacancies right now. So now I think is a particularly risky time to invest in properties if you want to make that cash flow um, and have tenants in there eventually. If you're going for that yield strategy, yeah, but that I think <laughs> I think appreciation. My personal thoughts are like appreciation right now is a bit of a safer play because with condos specifically, there's there's opportunity for the market to improve and to correct itself and for it to go back to at least be on the same trajectory that it was before. Yeah, I just want to clarify that that's for downtown Toronto condos. And that's a very specific, you know, subset of, of types of investments. If you look outside the GTA, if you look at single family homes, those are doing better than ever. Um, so it really is about figuring out, you know, what's happening in the landscape. It definitely was not like that last year. And so anybody who was sort of looking during this time has probably had to reevaluate what they were looking for just based on the uh, current environment. Um, so while I completely agree with uh, you both, you also have to remember that in the appreciation strategy, depending on your time horizon, you likely, unless you're living there yourself and you want to live in there and then wait to sell it so that you can make that difference, you'll probably have to tenant it out just at the very minimum so you can cover your costs and then wait for the property to appreciate. So that rental market is actually particularly crucial regardless of which strategy you're doing. Um, and because you need somebody to carry your costs either way. So if, if the rental market isn't good and wherever you're looking um, to buy that investment property, um, chances are it's not going to be as safe as you would like it to be. Unless you're willing to move in that property right now yourself. Right. And live there and carry the cost right now yourself. Right. Yeah, that's a strategy that I've seen people do as well, where they move into an investment property and then they have tenants in throughout different parts of the property. So they'll build out different units, they'll get them legally um, zoned for that. And that's something that is a long process that maybe we can talk about in a separate episode, how I rezone a single family home into a multiplex. Not even investment properties, though. I see people with their own homes um, rent out the basement or rent out a floor, and that's how they actually get more financing for mortgages and are able to afford a more expensive house. For sure. That's exactly what I was talking about, Katie, but more so if you, let's say, want to rent out a roof or sorry, the first floor of your house, <laughs> let's say you want to rent out the first floor of your house, you need to go to the city and you need to basically get permission to do that, which do is, you? yeah, you do. I didn't know that. Otherwise, um, your neighbors can complain because let's say you live in, on a street and your next door neighbor has decided to split up his house into four units. Now you've got four different groups of people potentially living in that house. There's more cars, there's more traffic, there's more noise. Like as a neighbor, you're going to be upset about it. And you can call the city and say, Hey, what, what the heck is my neighbor doing? I don't like this. He but doesn't have own, permission. But you own that. I know. And that drives me crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. But you, you have to get permission. Yeah, it's also a big uh, safety concern in that making sure that there are enough fire exits for everybody and that everything has been done up to code. When the house is built from the builder, that's 
you know, guaranteed right away um, because they, they had to go through that process. When somebody comes in, regardless of it's, if it's your own home or not, if you're suddenly going to take a single family home and convert it into four separate units, it's got to go through a permitting process. It's got to get up to code. It's got to be safe for people. So it is a long, expensive process. Um, and sometimes probably not worth its while to go through something like that there are tons of multiplexes out there um, that are available which you know if that's something that you're looking for that's a completely separate sort of investment type um, but you can look for those types of opportunities i would not suggest buying a single family home and trying to um, do it yourself if you're looking to get you know three four apartments in there renting out the basement is a little bit easier up to two sort of uh, two separate units you still have to get permits if you want to rent out the basement, though, am I correct? You, you have to get permits because it's got to be, um, a, a lot of people don't in the industry. It's just sort of widely expected that most people don't. You'll get somebody in the basement, but you, you are supposed to, and there are supposed to be two separate exits for the basement if somebody else is living in there as a separate unit. And that's where most people just don't have that uh, availability in that they, they sort of have to block off one side of the house and there's only one legal exit. I don't know if you have any experience with having tenants, but if you do, what are some things you look for when like picking tenants to fill your investment properties? Yeah, so so this is a really good question. Um, what, what I would say is, uh, especially in this rental market, you, you should always be picky with the types of people you bring into your investment property because they are going to be the financial and sometimes the emotional make or break for that investment for you. Um, so you do want somebody that is going to be responsible, that's going to take care of it, and most importantly, can afford it. It is so much more important than it ever has been now because of COVID and because if something goes wrong, it is that much harder to get them out and it's gonna be a, you know, a much longer process. Um, the biggest thing that I would say is um, the standard process is a rental application and the credit score, uh, making sure that there's nothing um, that's a red flag on, on the credit check is important um, because you wanna make sure that they're responsible with their payments, they're, they're not sloppy, they, they don't have a lot of debt uh, on the books. The biggest um, contributor to whether or not they can pay the rent or, or they will pay the rent is sometimes simply, can they afford to pay the rent? And I think you should be doing that math in your head as if you were in their shoes and as if you were going to live there. If they've got a lot of debt on the books, if there's only, say it's a family and there's only one income and they've got, you know, several different kids and it's a low income and your house is, you know, maybe on the higher end of the rental market, think to yourself, can they afford to stay in this place with, you know, what they're making? And if the answer is simply, you know, is no, then they're not the right tenant for you. And I think that's most people just sort of look at the credit score as a number that's very sort of binary, either it's above this and it's a check or below this and it's not a check, but put yourself in their shoes and really think about the economics of their life and whether or not they can be there. And the second thing is, and this is just from my own personal experience, my, my family's own personal experience is you have to sort of like the person that's going in there because chances are at some point, something is going to go wrong. The stove is going to break, something is gonna happen. And you want the person who, you know, you can have a real conversation with and figure out a way to work together because it is going to come up. And if you, especially if they're staying long-term um, and, and it will make a difference in your life if you have a good relationship with them. Definitely, Sub. Um, 
a lot of really, really valuable insights there when you guys do eventually purchase investment properties and want to bring tenants in. But let's backtrack for a quick second to when you were talking about multiplexes and how the mortgages are different for multiplexes. And this is something that you actually shared with me a few few months back. Um, and I just had no idea. So when you mentioned earlier about having a mortgage broker close to you and being in contact with them before you even start looking, why, why did you mention that? And what kind of different mortgages are there for different kinds of properties? Yeah, so this is actually a really great point. It's why I, I really stress the importance of having a good mortgage broker from day one, looking at your properties with you because uh, multiplexes, they go through a, a different loan process than uh, single family homes. So multiplexes are considered commercial loans. So it's they actually end up underwriting the property as opposed to just the person and the interest rates are a lot higher. Their criteria are different. Um, the down payment structure can, can be different. Um, so this is where a mortgage broker really comes in. And I, I won't go into the details of it because the mortgage industry is, is very, very complicated. And like I said, it's, it's almost ever changing in terms of what the requirements are, particularly during COVID. You saw that things that were um, standard practice before have sort of changed. Um, and, and so that's something that I discovered along the way is that multiplexes in typically any unit or any property that has more than two units is actually considered a multiplex and therefore goes through a different loan process entirely. And it is a lot more expensive. So if you were doing your math on single family detached home um, mortgage prices that you got, this could actually change the entire economics of the deal for you and no longer make sense. So again, that, that's why I, I can't stress enough the importance of having professionals around you. There's no way to know everything. Um, and so relying on those people and, and having them help you through the process before you get to a point where you put an offer in and before you get to that uh, financing condition, if you own one, it is going to save you a lot of headaches down the road. Definitely. Let's uh, talk about the searching for a property phase. So we talked about planning and how you want to make sure that you've got enough money set aside and you understand what your goals are. You kind of list out a basic criteria of what you're aiming for or what you want out of life or the next you know decade or so but let's talk about the searching phase specifically so what what do you usually do when you're trying to find a property whether it's an investment property or your dream house what do you do yeah, so that there are two steps to this, and, and um, we already mentioned, you know, how important it is to have a, a, a good agent who is very responsive. Being responsive, I think, is one of the key criteria uh, of, of being a great agent because of how quickly the market moves. Um, but other than that, at the end of the day, this has got to be something that you're going to live with. So I don't think anybody should just be depending on their agent to tell them what to do. Your agent is there to support you and to provide you with as much information as possible so that ultimately you can make the right decision. Um, and so I think you should be searching on every site that you can find possible, whether that's just, you know, realtor.ca and looking at what listings are out there and what's interesting to you, uh, but also looking at, um, because like we said, how the rental market is going to be um, key in making sure that your investment um, property, at least the, the financial obligations are met, you should also be looking at the rental market. And the rental market um, has a few different platforms that you could use. Um, a lot of rental listings are actually on um, Facebook Marketplace or Padmap or Zumper, depending on the area. So you going in there and looking at 
what's out there, how many active listings out there, um, sold data as much as you can, and your realtor can help you with this, or you can use a site like confidence.com, which is uh, specialized in helping you find investment properties. And they really bring the whole financial workbook online so that everything that you originally had to do on Excel, it does it for you instantly based on those listings. So that's a really awesome tool. Um, but it is, it does boil down to you going in there and you, you know, evaluating these opportunities and seeing these opportunities daily. And the more you see, the more you're going to learn along the way. It is impossible to go into this and think you know everything. So the um, the multiplex example is a great example of how you think you've got it all figured out. You've got your down payment, you spoke to your mortgage broker, you have a pre-approval, and then you find somewhere that has three units and all of a sudden you can't get um, the loan that you thought you could for it. And it's got to go through an entirely new division and new process. Um, and those are things that you sort of learn along the way but as, as long as you're being proactive you you'll get through those and you'll learn so I love that you said you learn along the way I think life in general is is like that where you don't know what you don't know and you learn so much as you go but um, for for you guys who are listening and didn't quite catch some of the tools that Seb mentioned we're definitely going to link all of them in the show notes Confidus is one that I recently started using and I love it Seb actually introduced me to it but it's very technical so it has all these kinds of formulas in there and you can change the assumptions around but it's a very technical tool so what I would start with if you're you know fairly new to researching and um, you know definitely get your agent to help you but housesigma.com is such a great tool to see past sales data and past lease data too so you can see how much basement apartments rent for if that's what you want to do with the with a property and it has a separate legal basement unit um so there's there's a lot of different tools out there we'll link them all as well for you guys who were listening to the first bit about the planning phase and thinking about how many um how much extra cash to allocate to costs we're currently building a formula or a spreadsheet for you guys that we will send out to all of our email subscribers so if you guys go onto our website misfindependent.com and uh subscribe to our email list we'll send it out to you um the Friday of when this episode gets released so that you guys have access to different financial calculators and you can do um, a more comprehensive analysis while you're in the planning and searching phase. Yeah, so, so this is actually a, a really interesting question because, um, you know, like I said before, the residential real estate landscape is so incredibly competitive in that people are always looking. So for you to find value that you know others necessarily don't see might not be the case what i would say is that you could find value in a way that serves your purpose and might not serve somebody else so for example if somebody else needs something that um is an investment property that they're you know they're too busy with life they've got four kids at home and they're just like you know what i can't service this so maybe they want something that's uh newer that's closer to home so they don't have to drive and maybe that's valuable for them and maybe it's not valuable for you so i think defining sort of um value is very important but then once you do that the other side is to just search everything you can and don't be limited by your preconceptions of um, housing. I think we touched upon this earlier. It's making sure that you don't think, well, this doesn't look like my dream home or this doesn't look like my parents' house or like my friends' houses, therefore it's not good enough for me. You should always be driven by, can I afford this? Does it make sense for my goals? Um, 
versus what it looks like. So if that means expanding your geographical range, so that maybe if your budget is a little bit smaller, you can go into um, towns that are a little bit further away, but haven't really been hit with the, um, the price appreciation that you've seen in other places, or maybe are on um, a lower spectrum of that J curve moving up and you want to catch it just in time. Um, so again, value is, is defined in a lot of ways, but be open and do your homework and, and don't, be, uh, don't be bound by what you think you want out of a property for yourself because it is an investment pro property. So the, the criteria should be different. Great. Thank you, Seb. Um, I have a really tough question for you. Sure. Go for why, it. Why would someone want to invest in real estate rather than the stock market? Yeah, that, you know what, this is actually, this is actually a great question, um, because I think more than ever, you're going to sort of see young people trying to make this comparison. Um, I, I'll answer in, in almost a very general way, because I think everybody has their own comfort level with real estate and with stocks. Um, a lot of people flock to um, the housing market versus equity because they see it and their perception is that it's a safer investment. And a lot of people just like that there's something tangible that they've invested in, um, something that you can see, something that you can check up on, something that you can fix yourself versus somebody who maybe doesn't have a finance background or maybe is new to Canada and doesn't understand the equity markets might not be as inclined to do it because they see it as something that's almost enigmatic in, in its um, and how to use it, how to evaluate different opportunities, and they believe they're more trained in that. Um, so I, I always say anybody can get on the property ladder if you plan enough and if you you know work hard and sort of follow all the steps. So that's what I love about real estate is that um, it doesn't discriminate between who can who can get involved in it, and it's been such a such a good investment for a lot of people um, historically. Um, so like I said, I think that's what draws people to real estate. That's certainly what drew me. Um, but personally for me, my dad's a GC, my mom's in property management. I've been around real estate my entire life. So it's very personal to me that I'll continue investing in real estate because that's what I've grown up around. That's what I'm comfortable with. I think I have a leg up in evaluating real estate opportunities versus investing in the equity market. Not that you can't do both, but just for the purpose of you know comparing um, the two. And so it becomes ultimately very personal to what you are comfortable with and what you think you um, can live with. Yeah, those are some interesting points because I'm pro stock market and I have my thoughts there too, but that's an interesting view. <laughs> I, I think I think everybody can get into the stock market as well or the equities market. Yeah. Anybody can get into real estate. It's just understanding what your level of risk tolerance is. And yeah. that's something that Katie and I are striving to do is help women specifically who are statistically way more risk averse um, I think a lot of that comes down to like biologically, we want to be able to um, care for children and prepare and make sure that we've got our nest egg supported and cared for. And yeah, I think that no, comes down to psychologically how we react to equities and real estate as well. And so like you mentioned, a lot of people have made lots of money in real estate and that's a hundred percent true, but a lot of people have also lost money and the same thing can be said about the stock market. So um, the I think, theme, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> sorry. The theme of what we've talked about today is just never stop learning. Always do your research, do your homework. And there are so many resources out there for people to learn 
about everything, whether that's, you know, equities or real estate, there's, there's YouTube, which you can learn so much from. There's conversations like this. And if you guys have listened to all of this at this point, you're one of those people who I'm confident is going to do well and build wealth for themselves because you're getting the resources that you need to build that wealth for yourself. And with the real estate investing and stock market investing, you're essentially doing the same thing. You're either creating passive income, whether that be through dividends or through rental income, or you're creating capital appreciation, whether that be selling your stock for more than what you bought it for or selling your property for more than what you bought it for. The thing with the stock market is you don't have to take on debt necessarily to do that. Whereas with properties you do. Mm -hmm. So that might be a reason why investing with the stock market might be a little more attractive for people um, just starting off out of university who maybe don't have a employment income or high enough employment income to secure the mortgage that they need. Um, But yeah, essentially you're doing the same thing. You're just picking which of the two you want. Exactly. And and, um, not to be repetitive, but it really all of this, even if you pick one of those strategies and then we'll, you know, uh, picking what type of real estate, if it's real estate or what type of stocks it is, if it's stocks, um, it really does boil down to it's very, very personal to your uh, risk tolerance is very personal to what you find safer and what you would like to do. And it's personal to what you can live with. So um, like I said, I, I try not to give people direct advice other than discover what works for you. I think that's the best advice that you can give because everybody ultimately is going to make the right decision for themselves anyways. And, you know, we get a ton of questions about even like some of our stock picks. We do a lot of research when we put together our stock picks and we try to have a a wide, wide range of strategies. So whether you want to do individual stock investing, which we don't recommend for beginners unless, you know, you do your research, um, when we talk about ETFs and, you know, safer stocks, let's say like stocks that pay dividends or more mature um, companies. So there's, there's a lot of different strategies out there, a lot of different approaches and I really value what you said, Zev. There's no one size fits all basically for any type in investing. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Awesome, Zev. Well, we appreciate having you on so much. Like this was such a valuable conversation. I've learned conversation. so much. <laughs> really, like I think a lot of people are going to take some value out of this people, you know, our age, millennials want to start investing in property. They see how low interest rates are right now. Maybe they've worked for a few years, want to get into the market themselves. Now is a good time to do it, um, mainly because taking on debt is so cheap and, you know, it's, it's a great opportunity. And like we said, anybody can do it. So if you guys have been thinking about it and, you know, you need a sign, this is your sign. Sev, just to end this off, I have one last question for you. What does wealth mean to you? Wealth to me is being or feeling safe, feeling like you've got something that you're that you're almost protected in a way. So I think for me, um, investing in real estate is very personal in that I hope to build a safety net for myself, for my future family, and um, and also feel educated in that uh, I found a way to make a little bit of money and I found a way to invest a little bit of money and and hopefully that builds upon itself. Um, But for me, that safety net of, you know, knowing that 
I've done something and I've um, found a way to build a little bit of money and build that safety net for myself is, is very, very important. Um, and I think that'll vary from person to person, but for me specifically, uh, that's very, very important. Awesome stuff. Well, this was such a great conversation. We appreciate having you on so much. want to let you go because it's been quite a bit of time that we've chatted with you. And as always, it's a pleasure. Um, if you guys want to connect with Sev, how, how can someone connect with you if they have questions? Well, well, firstly, thank you guys so much for having me. This is not such a great podcast, not only such a great podcast to, to listen to. I'm just sort of always glued to when you're dropping the episode, but I'm just absolutely, you know, so grateful uh, to be here and to have this conversation, not just with you guys, but hopefully for anybody listening as well. Um, for anybody who wants to get connected with me, um, I'm available on LinkedIn. It's a lengthy name, so maybe <laughs> you guys can uh, post it down there, but it's Severina Lutage. You can add me anytime, and I'm always happy to talk to people who are willing to learn. And I hope I can share uh, some of the few things that I've learned and hopefully learn from you as well. Thank you so much, Seth. And until next time, guys. Until next Tuesday. Bye.